0: Thank you. Thanks, Taylor. If you take out your insert and open it up inside, where the text is, Genesis 1 and 2, I became a grandfather this week, which is interesting. <laughs> you know, it's curious how a 29-year-old becomes a grandfather, but... He ages 20 more years. That's how it is. Um, and so you have these, these points in life, these, these transition points. Like, do I, know, do I know what I'm doing now? Am I actually really grown up yet? Maybe it's graduating high school or college or getting married or turning 30 or 40 or 50. I don't know. Maybe it's becoming a parent or a grandparent. Do you know what you're doing yet? And I'm now a grandparent and almost 50, and I've graduated college a couple times. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Do you? Actually, we do. The text today tells us what we're supposed to be doing with our life. I'm going to cut to the chase and say it is simply this, imaging God. Bearing the divine image where we happen to be, where we find ourselves. We are imaging God. God. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so let me just jump in. During the Advent season, we're, we're going through the creation account, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, as a jumping off point of a series that's going to go all the way through the Old Testament, touching down in various spots for about 25 or 30 weeks. Last week, we looked at the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, and we said, before we understand Genesis, we have to understand that it's not written to us, it's written for us perhaps as the people of god it's not written to us however like every text of scripture we have to say who is genesis to whom is genesis written to whom is this text written and then we understand it and we saw last week genesis is written by breathed out by god inspired by god written through moses to the israelites when they're in the wilderness they've exited slavery in egypt they're The world is new to them. They're experiencing freedom for the first time. It's kind of a chaotic world. They're in the wilderness. That's the context, and that's the people to whom this was given. And it was given within their framework of understanding. They would have understood it. It was words and symbols and pictures and ways of communicating that they understood. So we have to get back into their mindset and say, how did they understand it before we could understand it? And finally. I wanted to make the case last week that it is communicating historical events, but it's communicating also the theological significance of those events. right? And that's where you get into a lot of play, it's like more theological significance or more precise historical events, and there's a lot of so there's a lot of flexibility in there. But I, I made the case that Genesis is a God-inspired text written by Moses to Israel in the wilderness within their frame of understanding to communicate theological implications of these historical events. And as such, there doesn't have to be, I don't think, a necessary conflict between the text as it's written in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and what the uh, uh, current scientific establishments might reveal to us observationally. I you could have a conflict, but there doesn't have to be a conflict. Covered all of that last week. Go back listen to that sermon. You can ask me afterwards. You can write emails. We can dialogue that way. That's fine. I don't think there has to be a conflict. We have to, however, let the text set the agenda. If we treat the text as Siri, right? Hey, Siri, all right? Then boop, boop waiting for a, t- a question, and we ask Siri, whatever question we want to ask Siri, we're trained to do this, many of us, um, I don't know what you do if you have a Samsung, I don't even, I don't even care, I've got an iPhone, um, hey Siri, and uh, you can ask Siri any question you want, and Siri will return this range of answers you get to choose the answer from. If we come to the Scripture that way, asking this whole range of questions, anything we want, we will inevitably miss what the Scripture has to say because we will be demanding answers from it about questions it's not addressing. I'm not saying we can't ask hard questions of the text, but I am saying we have to let the Bible set the agenda for the type of questions because sometimes it's just not answering the questions we're asking. So we want to let the Bible set the agenda, and when we take it on its own terms, I think it comes into focus. Today, I want to highlight what was pointed to on verse uh, day six, day 6 of creation. That's the creation of man and woman. Specifically, man and woman made in the image of God. What that means. And then I want to look at Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. So image of God and then the prototype of the image of God, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. But first, I want to zoom out and make an observation about the whole flow of the biblical text, especially with respect to the Garden of Eden. One of the constant dynamics that's so constant we might miss it in the Scripture, and it shows up right at the beginning in Genesis 1, is this interplay between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Things happen in heaven, or happen in heaven, and then corresponding things happen on the earth. So in Genesis 1, from heaven God speaks, and on earth stuff happens. It happens on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Heaven and earth. These two realms. The ancients thought of heaven up here. That was more symbolic up. You know, as the scripture unfolds, we see heaven is like inter, interweaving and overlapping with reality. If, if it was being communicated to us today, might, we might hear about dimensions. Right? One dimension, another dimension. Heaven is all around us. It's, it's not up. It's, it's everywhere. It's overlapping. But in the scripture, God speaks in heaven. Things happen on earth. There are things on in heaven that are reflected on earth. So creation... When God makes man and woman in his image, what do we have? On earth, kind of like it is in heaven, an image, a reflection of God. Another aspect that doesn't show, you don't get this right away because it's not specific, but by the time you get to the prophet, you say, oh, is this. Heaven is is the special presence of God, the holy place. Another word for that in the scripture is a temple. Heaven is pictured like a temple. It's a holy place. The Garden of Eden, by the time you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and the, the careful Bible reader says this, Oh, Eden is also pictured as a special holy place with the special presence of God. You might even call it a temple, even though it's not called itself a temple. But it is pictured as such, and let me give you a few reasons. This will make sense in a moment. Um, I don't know what you think of the, sort of the topography of the Garden of Eden, And I don't really care for, like, the children's Bibles that have pictures of Eden in it um, because then it gets you a picture in your mind. You read the Bible, you see that. They're not helpful. For the record, I don't think you should watch movies of Jesus either because it makes you see Jesus. And he always looks like a white French guy for some reason. It's ridiculous. (laughs) He was a Jewish man. (laughs) Um, Okay, anyway, I digress. Um, When you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they call Eden the garden a mountain. It's a mountain, and don't think of a garden like, you know, 300 square feet of tomatoes and beans. Right? Think of a a national park. That's kind of a garden that's being pictured here. It's a mountain. And we know from Genesis 3, and so what is that important? Well, in the, in the ancient times, it was in their conception, the high places were more, more holy because it was sort of closer to heaven. This, this interplay between earth and heaven was closer, right? So things on a high place were holy. Eden's called a mountain. And we know from Genesis 3 that the presence of God was there because after sin, Adam and Eve hid from the presence of God, the face of God, literally. Um, and in heaven, the holy place is guarded by these winged, ferocious, deadly creatures, angel-type creatures called cherubim. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. Cherubim, seraphim, they're different things. Um, I know it seems nuanced, but cherubim apparently only have one function in the universe, to guard the holy place. And they're ferocious. And so in heaven, there's cherubim, they guard the holy place. When Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, they may not come back on pain of death, and the way is guarded by? Guess cherubim and then finally when uh so the people of israel are led out of slavery and god says i'm going to begin to make the earth a holy place again i'm going to you're, and you're going to eventually build a, a temple in the promised land in jerusalem on mount zion and some of it one generation of it's still there in jerusalem today and the western wall is there still But before that, you're going to to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and you're going to have a tabernacle, which is basically a huge tent that they had to pick up and move everywhere, and it was super heavy, but it was uh, anticipating the uh, the temple. It's like a a mini temple that they moved around. But if you read the descriptions of it into the bowels of the Old Testament, it's described like a garden, it's decorated like Eden. And when they get to the, uh, when they build the temple in Jerusalem finally, it's paneled in cedar and carved and overlaid in gold and all that stuff, and the carvings are reflective of the fruit and the trees and the picture of Eden. And in the Holy of Holies, the inner inner part of the temple, the most holy place where God met met with the high priest once a year, uh, depicted the presence of God. We saw this in Good Friday of this year. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Again, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Right? You got to get that out of your mind. Although I loved it. Like, and the guy's face melted. It was fantastic. But, um, sorry. Old. I, I'm dating myself. Right? Grandfather. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, this holy. Holy of holy relics on top of it are two cherubim and their wings touch as if to cover it and protect it. And then in the holy of holies, this 30 feet wide room, there are two huge 15 foot uh, statues of cherubim. They're they're made of wood and they're overlaid with gold. They're 15 foot tall and 15 foot wide and one wing of each of them touches the wall of the temple and then the the two wings together touch over the Ark of the Covenant to protect everything. That's the same thing that's guarding the way back to the garden that Eden is a temple, Uh, and it's maybe you would say the earthly prototype of the temples that follow. The original plan, therefore, was for Adam and Eve, through their uh, subduing and and guarding and cultivating the garden, to eventually spread the, the boundaries of the garden so the whole earth is a special temple presence of God. They don't do this, right? They get kicked out. Adam and his bride lose the opportunity to do that because of sin. What happens then? One temple is made the tabernacle, and the temple is growing influence of that, and then it's washed away, and then Jesus comes as the new temple. He grows in influence. He's crucified, resurrected, ascends to heaven, sends his spirit into the people of God, the church, and calls you together, the temple. See, Siri wants questions. Uh, uh, calls us together, the temple, growing in influence in the whole earth. And then what do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? We see the holy city in Revelation coming down to earth, and it comes down to touches down, the barrier between heaven and earth is removed, faith becomes sight, everything is renewed, and what is the picture we get? This whole earth now is a garden city, a special presence of God. So that what the first Adam and his bride did not do and could not do, the one who's called the second Adam, Jesus, and his bride, the church, get to do. Okay? That's the storyline. That's the Temple Eden storyline. Uh, and that, I think that whole storyline is important for us to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, that Adam and Eve were and that you are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that every person, every human person is made in the image of God. And it did not, that reality didn't get lost at the fall. When sin came into the world, after that in Genesis 9 and Book of James and other places, people are des- described as made in the image of God. And Genesis 1 and 2 teaches that we are originally created to bear the divine image in relationship with others and in fellowship with God. Adam and Eve are the prototype. But sin came, comes in and breaks things. And so when I was a youth pastor a long time ago, literally in the last millennium, right, uh, in the ni- you know, 1900s, um, I, when the ways to communicate this that I used were, was this. Uh, an image, you know, so this mirror here, this is a compact mirror I got from the dollar store, uh, reflects an image, right, right? I, it's reflecting me right here. I see an image of me. Is this really me? Well, yes and no. It's an image right? I can tell, oh, that's Raj. Everything's a little bit reversed, and because this is a mirror that blows things up, everything's it's distorted a little bit. These pores are huge right here, right? So it's like, it's, you, so you can see you. This is really you if you can see you right it's really an image of you but it's only a reflection of you it's a likeness of you but enough that you could recognize you in some significant way okay this is the original plan for us for humans to image god in some way we'll get to that in a second but sin comes in and it breaks us it breaks the image it cracks it it tarnishes it it twists it it warps it so that this is more a picture of the image of God after sin. I don't know if you can see this. This is, you know, it's just a broken mirror. I, basically, I hit with a hammer and covered it with, you know, strapping tape. That's it. Um, does this really reflect the image still? Uh, yeah, it does. So enough that I could, if I look very carefully, I could say, oh, that, that's me. But there's all kinds of cracks and missing pieces and you've got a couple pieces that are backwards. It's all messed up. Is it still really a reflection? Yes. Is it a complete reflection like it used to be? No, it is not. This is what the hammer blow of sin does to our life. But we're infinitely, uh, because God is infinite, no two of us are alike, we're all different. That means sin, the, the hammer blow of sin drops into each of our lives a little bit differently. So you may look like this. You may look like this. Also cracked, oh, maybe that's not cracked as bad. Maybe I can still see more. But then you say, well, actually, there's a lot more cracks in that. It's just uh, this was taped together before I hit it with a hammer, right? And so here, and we're, we're unique in our brokenness. That's all I want to communicate. We're unique in the way we're made in the image of God, but also we're unique in the way sin has come into our life and cut deeply into our life. And when I was working with the youth, I would say something like, and what we tend to do is we look at other people where they're cracked and we're not and feel superior. Like, oh, whew, you got a big crack right there and I don't see that in mine, so I feel better. Or, this depends on who you are or what kind of day you're having, you look at somebody where they're not cracked and you are and you feel inferior. So, but what is the problem with both of these mirrors? they're cracked. They're broken. What do you need? You need a new mirror. You need a fixed mirror, a restored mirror. And the message of the gospel is not that, oh, you're better than this person, not better than this person because you're cracked this way or not this way. It's that Jesus comes in and fixes broken things, right? Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness This is the original design. This, uncracked, is the original design template for humanity. We just like highlight a couple things we saw in the image and likeness. Somehow, man was designed, and I say man, man and woman together, designed to reflect on earth God as he is in heaven. There's still this creature or creator-creature distinction, but there's designed a fundamental similarity in some way between humans and God. It's what distinguishes us from the other animals. We try to get our hands around, by, our heads around, by saying things like conscience and sentience or whatever. Maybe it's like the ability to enjoy things, like we see God saying of the days of creation, it is good. Or. Uh, Self consciousness. It could be uh, cognitive development, language. Even uh, materialist atheists will say that even there are some uh, primate primates that have some language expression ability, chimpanzees and apes, of different kinds. But they would say that there's a fundamental distinction though between that and humans, in that humans have the ability to develop grammar, understanding, and language it can develop on its own. That that's just, there's not the the capacity in non-humans for that to be the case. Is that part of what it means, you know, from a God who communicates verbally to us to be, I don't know. But there's some significant likeness that humans have to God. And then we are his agents, his representatives in this earth. He says clearly, male and female. Remember, these guys are coming out of slavery in Egypt where the only representative of God was Pharaoh, the only one. Was the Pharaoh. And it doesn't just expand and say, all men are the image of God. No. Nope. All men and women, all male and female, are Im- Imago Dei is the Latin, the image of God. And then he gives them a commission, uh, verse 28. So it tells them what he did. He created them in his own image, male and female. Uh, you don't have that's not a part of the commission. It's just telling what he did. And then the commission, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. First of all, he says, Here's your first commission multiply. Growth, have children. Uh, In the Bible, children are not a curse, they are not a restriction, they are not a hindrance, they are a blessing. They are a blessing. That's the general disposition of the Scripture toward children. Is that the disposition of our culture toward kids? Eh, sometimes, sometimes not. Go back to the headwaters. Go back to the source. This is the disposition we're invited to see. Kids are a blessing. Whether they're your kids or your family's kids or church kids, kids are a blessing. Okay? Um, it's not telling you how many kids they have, just that they're a blessing. Okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. They're a blessing. Um. Sometimes you have to tell yourself they're a blessing, right? You have to convince that again. So Um, as your parents did. Uh, Subdue is a word that means bring into order, which is really interesting. It means um, wherever there's disorder, we use power to bring order. It does beg the question what were things like outside of the of the Garden of Eden? Answer we're not told. They were such, however, that Adam and the the man and women were told to uh, subdue it, bring order to some sort of disorder. It's really interesting. And then have dominion, which makes us nervous because from that we get the word domination, which, you know, it's all just, it's dominus, which is master, mastery in Latin, like exercise mastery over things. Like God did, however, though. So, you just go back to Genesis 1 and say, How did God exercise dominion? He brought things to life and made them flourish. That's what it's talking about. So, a lot of Hebrew scholars would tell us that exercising dominion, really, its better translation is to bring about flourishing. To bring about flourishing. To use your creativity, wisdom, ingenuity, energy, power to cause things in your environment to work together so they flourish. What environment? What environment are you in? That's the original call. To be God's agents and to express heaven on earth. Adam and Eve were to lead the charge and actually creating heaven on earth by the, 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 temp, the Eden temple expanding to the end of the earth. We, had things not gone sideways, would have been part of that. Things didn't go sideways. Things are broken. Now, if you intuited, when I say words like male, female, multiply, exercise power for good, that this passage might have something to do with the current debates around gender and sexuality, you would be correct. It just headwaters, back to the headwaters. God saying, I've originally created you, male or female, to be in relationships that can multiply and for you to use your power for good and for the flourishing of the world around you. Now, predictably, if we, think, if we think, well, what happens if that teaching gets run through the matrix of human sin? Think about how the New Testament talks about sin the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil being the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The flesh being that part of us which is still in rebellion against God, even in those who are in Christ, that is either natural, kind of, we're born with it, or that we cultivate. by our actions and attitudes and behaviors or that's sort of forced upon us in our environment that's broken when we get sinned against and things get all janky and and walk and everything goes sideways in our life. That develops a sin tendency in us and then the world in which we live that cooperates with the, the devil and our flesh to create sort of feedback loops and ways of understanding that make it make sense. A couple month, uh, weeks ago, we saw that this uh, quote that worldliness is anything that makes righteousness look strange or sin look normal. That's worldliness. World flesh and the devil, put that together, create a matrix, run the image of God through it. What would you expect to see? Predictably, we might set, expect to see things like gender confusion, relationships that cannot multiply, right? Or relationships that can but outside the covenant of marriage, or using power, not for the good of others, but for the good of ourselves. Using our ability to, to uh, bring energy and our force to bear on something, not for the flourishing of the things, not for the flourishing of our family, but for the flourishing of ourselves. Okay? The image of God is the pattern of human flourishing. The twisting of it is dehumanizing. And part of the genius aspect of sin is that we can actually be convinced when we are doing things that actually are leading unto our dehumanizing that we are being fully human. Okay. Implication here, the original plan that was lost in the fall but recaptured in Jesus is that God intended to partner with his image bearers to express heaven on earth and through doing that, build heaven on earth. That was lost. That was lost at the fall But for this, we, we carry this sort of design pattern in us still. We are endowed with gifts and abilities and skills and desires that could be used unto those things. And each of us is different because we're each our little mirrors, our little reflections. Right? this is where Each of us has this little mirror that's reflecting an infinite God. But we're finite. We only got this little circumference of our mirror, right? That means each of us maybe reflect a different part of God. So there's a lot of difference in each one. Um, and that's, this is true among those who are not followers of Jesus either. It, a lot of times this shows up like with desires for, uh, we might call, secular justice, right? Um, a lot of politics is just rooted in this, like people that have this latent leftover reality of the image of God and then therefore have deep passions about things, but in the separated from the creator, when the, when the creature gets separated from the creator, we become our own authority, and then we, the world, therefore, says some things are flourishing, where Scripture says, oh, that's not flourishing at all. We say, that's dehumanizing, where the world say, oh, that's, that's humanizing. So we got to go back to the fountainhead, back to the source, and see, let, what does Scripture say is flourishing? This does, however, tell us that we can and ought to operate with a profound respect For every single person we meet in this world. Because you have never met a normal human being. I put on the bottom right of your insert, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. I haven't quoted Lewis in over a month, so here we go. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these designations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, marry, Snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You have never met an ordinary person. You have only met people made in the image of God. Cracked, tarnished, broken, yes. Real image bears definitely. And as, look, we've got, God has opened this to us, this revelation to us. This allows us, guys, we can relate to every single person first based on the Common fact that we are made in the image of God. Even the most vile person that's done things you wouldn't do and don't approve, whatever, made in the image of God. We have common ground, instant common ground with every single person in this world. We are made in the image of God. I would encourage us first to think about relating to people based on that, then our sin, okay? No one ignores sin, but it's just like let's relate in the order things were created. Uh, this By the way, solves the identity crisis in part. What are you supposed to do as a grandpa? Or wherever station you are in life. You have been designed to live out your calling by aiding the flourishing of those around you. That's it. What environment am I supposed to do that in? What environment are you in? Do you want to do that on a huge stage? Okay, maybe start in your living room. Maybe start in your living room. You know, our culture communicates to us that we really... To be fully human, what we have to do is really find ourselves. And that curiously means when you find yourself, you will be different and better than every single person in the world. You will be different. If you really find out what you're supposed to be doing, you will be instantly successful or ultimately successful, and people will look at you, and they will revere you, and you will be different, and it will be great, and you will be like God. Next week we're going to see that desire gets people in trouble. It might well be that we can find deep and whole satisfaction and delight simply by looking around our life and saying, what relationships am I in? Where do I live? How can I use the gifts and skills God's put into me to bring about flourishing? As he's defined flourishing. Defined flourishing. How can I love people well? How can I serve them? How can I represent Jesus to them? How can I be to them a place of heaven on earth? Whether they respond healthy or not, this is our calling. You may never be famous. Who cares? God's the only one famous at the end of the day anyway. Right? We can live in very small places and connect to our original design pattern. Okay, then at the end of Genesis chapter 1, uh, there's a turn. Some, you know, Genesis 2 is a different account. Some people say it's a second creation account. I think it's probably just another angle. Like on creation, one is like situating man within the world. The second is situating man in relationship to God and each other. Uh, I, I think this is the case because the name for God changes from Genesis 1, which is Elohim, which is the more broad name of God, to Genesis 2, it's the Lord God or Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Okay. In Genesis 2, we see we're originally created to bear the divine image in relationship with others. And for sake of time, I'm just going to jump down to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, so all I want us to see, we're just barely touching on Genesis 2, sorry. Literally, there are sermon series on Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The garden that God planted is a specific place. It wasn't the whole earth. By the end, Genesis, Revelation 22, it's the whole earth. So this growth is anticipated. God creates a garden. He puts the man, Adam, which confusingly also is just the word for man, mankind, in the garden. Verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word keep means to guard it. When they're exiled from the garden, at the end of Genesis 3, the cherubim are put at the garden to guard it on pain of death. That's the same exact word used here. To guard it from something vile coming in. What was Adam to guard the garden from? Well, we'll see next week that there was something vile that would come in. Adam did not do his job. He was supposed to cause the garden to flourish, to exercise dominion over it, right? To cause it to flourish, to grow, and then to guard it. Um, all I want to see there is in, when we're causing things to flourish, sometimes there's a defensive function. Sometimes we have to say, this is evil and it must stop. That's still the case. He's to protect it, but not alone. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's a little unfortunate English word, helper. Not like, oh, a little servant helping Adam, right? The next time this is used, it's the word Ezra. It's for the Lord is the helper of Israel. But it's not a tiny word. It's not a little light word. This is, is going to be Eve, right? She's described as with the same word as the Lord who's the helper of Israel. This is a strong word. Um, Let's see, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? Sin comes in the world, of begin to cover themselves. So let me just say, uh, sometimes uh, this question, the passage is read and people say, what are the implications for those who are not yet married? Um, nothing. That's not, not what it's talking about context a horizon is like multiplication things producing after their own kind and then this is the pathway that this happens in right um adam fully the image of god before this just not good that he was alone from this we might take that it's not good for us to be alone even though if we are we're still fully the image of god okay i don't know what you want to do with this but i my job is to tell you what's true and then you figure it out okay um Verse twenty-one. While he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up the place with its flesh. That Hebrew word is happens forty-three times in the Old Testament. The number of times it's translated rib twice, and they're both in this sentence. What's it translated like the rest of the time? Side. It's just the side. Okay. Why does it say rib? I don't know, King James Version of the Bible did that. Forget your children's storybook Bibles. The picture, I think, I think, and this is where we're communicating theological truths of historical implications, the picture is God splitting the man in half and from his other half making the woman, which goes with the phrase helper fit, which literally means a a helper according to his opposite that fits together. That's why when God brings the woman to the man, he's like, ah. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the other half. There it is, right? Um, uh, For those who are married, this is the implication here. There ought to be a strong mutuality, right? There ought to be a strong mutuality. Half and a half, right? We're working this thing together, right? That's what we could take from this. The bigger picture is that even in creation, when things were good, it wasn't good for us to be alone. In in the front of your worship booklet, I'll put a quote from Tim Keller's sermon called Spiritual Friendship. This is generally the quote, you know, it's from a sermon. It's not necessarily printed, so. Um, Although a friend of mine wrote it, printed it in a book. I'm still not sure he got it right, but this is generally what it is. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. Every other ache, every other longing Adam ever had, that human beings ever had, the hunger ache, the sickness ache, the guilt ache, the lack of meaning in life ache, they all come from sin or the effects of sin. There, this is one ache that is part of his perfection, Adam could not even enjoy the paradise. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends or without community of some kind. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends or community. So this is Keller waxing poetic. Adam had a perfect quiet time every day, 24 hours. He never had a dry one, and yet he needed friends. We're designed to be a community. We're not designed to be Lone Rangers. From the beginning, we're made in the image of God who exists in a trinity, if you will, exists in community. We're designed for each other. Whether that's in marriage or friendship, being brought into a church family, we're meant to do this together. And finally, we're meant to do this in fellowship with God. Genesis 3 eight. Taylor, we'll get to this next week. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord The Lord God among the trees of the garden. They said, "Oh, it's the Lord's presence, like we've always known it, but now we've sinned, and for the first time ever, the Lord's presence—literally, that is His face—was a threat, and they hid themselves. They had been used; the the design pattern was together with the Lord for them to partner with Him for the flourishing of this earth, and that was lost. They were exiled from the garden, and." at the entrance of the garden was a cherubim that said, you cannot come back to the garden except by death. And they could not. But there was one who said, I will go back into the garden on pain of death. And he did. The first Adam was excluded, couldn't come back. The second Adam comes back. It cost him his life. Back into the garden he goes. And he... that which is lost in the fall, Jesus gets back. The broken image, he begins to restore. He's called in the New Testament, the perfect image. And in union with him, that that restoration us begins, begins. In Ephesians 2, it says, we are created in Christ Jesus or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works we are his workmanship is the word poema the way it's a it's the it's a special workmanship just like each of us were individually uh, special in the way we reflected god and special in the way we were broken when we're renewed in jesus we're being renewed into his special workmanship fit for you in your gifts but not, not the same as your gifts not the same as my gifts and passions but uniquely designed to be recreated in jesus so that we would be refit for this world to express on earth as it is in heaven based on how we're made. That's what Jesus gets back. That's why we say in Jesus we get our life back. He lived the life we should have died but didn't. He died the death that we should have died but didn't so that he can give us this image of God back and when we come into Christ by faith we trust him that we begin that renewal and slowly through confession and faith. And over time, the light gets turned up a little bit, and the the healing begins. And at one day will come full. But right now, we can anticipate that day. We can actually anticipate heaven by walking with Jesus now in intimacy, in each other, and saying, "Lord, heal me. I confess my brokenness to you. Come and heal me. Work with me and through me to express on earth as it is in heaven, wherever I happen to be." Let's start with those who are closest to us, our close friends. Our children, our spouses, our neighbors, right? The guy who left the beer truck parked in the parking lot. Come on, man. That's six, that's six parking spaces you're taking up. You don't care. What's, what's true about that man? Made in the image of God, right? And I could even have an opportunity to be heaven on earth to him if I get to talk to him, right? We cannot do that in our own strength. Good news is, you know, we don't have to. Part of the reason we come to the community table every single week is Jesus is committed to giving us grace every single week. If you're in Christ Jesus by faith, this table is open to you. And we want you to come and get it and know that Jesus is intent on restoring the image in you. I'm going to pray and invite you to the table. The way we do this here is we'll come to the outside.